Hello, fans and friendships. It's uh, Friday, July 3rd, and welcome to the huddle. Uh, it's my birthday today. Woohoo! Uh, and I'm sitting in my home office uh, about to start this 4th of July weekend uh, by delivering this birthday present to you. But I, I do have a birthday wish, and I hope that birthday wish is that you and I have a conversation. You know, 2020 has been an intense year. Uh, and I'm sure if anyone said that we'd be having the year that we're having right now, you would say that they're crazy. And, you know, to be honest, uh, this podcast has not backed down from that intensity. Uh, we've been trying to step into the moment uh, in every episode, uh, really thinking about what we need to be saying and what we need to be doing and what we need to be talking about. So I would love to hear from you. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Ram Sammy, that's R-A-M-S-A-M-M-Y. And the show uh, from Global Sport Matters is on Twitter too, which is at Global Sport M-T-R-S. And the reason why I'm asking you uh, to have a conversation with me is that I'm working on a future episode on triggers. Uh, there have been a lot of triggers that we've seen these last few weeks. Visual triggers, uh, word triggers, sound triggers that elicit emotions, right? That, that come with it. And, and I'd love to hear from you about that. Um, how are you feeling in this moment? And what is this moment compelling you to do? What are your feelings telling you? And especially as we think about sport, we haven't heard the sounds of a baseball bat cracking or a basketball bouncing or the sound of the crowd. So again, would love to hear from you and reach out to, to me and the show on Twitter. So I'm at Ram Sammy. That's R-A-M-S-A-M-M-Y. And then the show is at Global Sport M-T-R-S. There's also a renewed call to remove racist names and logos from sport. And that support is growing. So on today's episode, we're going to talk to Amanda Blackhorse. She was the lead plaintiff from a lawsuit that wanted to get the R word and its images removed from the Washington football team. And also, we're going to talk to Bill Roden from The Undefeated and Eric Dagens, NPR TV critic, who sit down with me in a roundtable discussion about the role of sports media and journalism. So from the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU, I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is The Huddle. In response to weeks of protests, calling for change, and an end to systemic racism, many well-known retail brands are taking heed. Quaker Oats, Uncle Ben's, Mrs. Butterworth have all announced that they will reimagine their branding to better fit the current times. In sports, eradicating racist mascots has been an ongoing battle for Amanda Blackhorse. In 2014, Amanda and four other young Native American petitioners won their nine-year-long case against the NFL Washington team before the trademark trial and appeals board under the U.S. Patent Office. The ruling canceled six trademarks, including a logo used by the team. However, in June of last year, a Supreme Court decision struck down bans on trademarks seen as immoral or scandalous, effectively reversing the ruling and backing the team, which continues to use the name and branding. 
Amanda Blackhorse is Dine and a member of the Navajo Nation and is founder of Arizona to Rally Against Native American Mascots, a group that promotes awareness in Arizona about the harmful effects of offensive Native mascots and Native cultural appropriation. Amanda, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. So a few weeks ago, uh, the Washington team participated on Twitter in Blackout Tuesday, uh, posting a black square and, and calling for racial equality. Um, they were obviously called out for their hypocrisy. And now we're seeing a revival of the demand to change the name of the team. Um, there's, there have been statements from several sports teams, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell supporting Black Lives Matter, uh, Washington team owner Dan Snyder pledging that he's going to you know, support the cause by giving $250,000 towards racial equality. Has there been anything from the teams about addressing this renewed call for the name change? Not to my knowledge, no. Um, I am waiting um, because I feel like this is the opportune time to do that. Um, but I feel like they do not see um, Native people in the argument or um, I don't think that they see us worth worthy enough for racial equality or to talk about racial equality. Um, I feel like they are being stubborn at this point. I think there has a lot of ego, um, a lot of ego issues there. Um, because I think it took a lot for them to, especially Roger Goodell, to admit that they were wrong about their understanding of uh, racism and police brutality, especially with what they did to Colin Kaepernick. I don't, um, I think that took a lot for them to do that. And I think it will take even more for them to admit that after all these decades that they were wrong about racist mascots as well. So America is, is kind of, you know, going through this awakening yet again on, on race and racism. Um, and there are a lot of people who are claiming that uh, when they see the mascot and the sev and several mascots associated with sports, that they don't believe that they're racist or that they don't understand how they are racist. Can you explain a little bit of the the mascot and particularly the Washington team's mascot and what that that mascot and that icon is is rooted in? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I think. Um, people don't necessarily understand the history of it. I think that the team has been around for so long, it's kind of ingrained in people's minds that they don't, you know, choose to look further into it. Um, and they're, you know, people always say, this is how it's always been. Uh, well, racism has always been there. Um, it's how we address it that, that matters. Um, so historically, the term, the R word, first of all, let's just, Let's just talk about the R word itself. The R word itself, you know, you would never, ever call anyone by the color of their skin. Um, and, or even, I mean, I understand, you know, people say white people, black people, you know, to describe an ethnicity or a race. But to name that as your team or, um, and to commodify it, is something completely different. Um, in our communities, we don't just casually refer to each other as the R word. 
um, it's the way that it's used that over the years and, ha and historically has been used as a way to degrade Native people. Historically, it was used to describe savage Indians. Um, and it, it, was, it was used to describe us in a way that um, was to, to demean us and also to describe the usage of um, scalps, like Native scalps. There was a point in time in history where Native people were hunted um, and there were bounties on our heads because there was just so many of us that this country wasn't able to exterminate us completely. We're so, I mean, this country is just so huge and there, you know, we have different ancestral territories that we were able to hide from the settlers um, or we were pushed to. And so to enlist the community and helping to exterminate the native community, um, you know, bounties were put on our heads um, and people were paid large sums of money to kill Native people, but they had to show that they actually killed a Native person because bringing back bodies to show your proof was just becoming a little too cumbersome for them. So scalping was a way to show that they had made their kill. Um, and so, the, I mean, these are, this is not just folklore, right? With, you know, this is not just stuff that people are making up. This is, there's actual uh, documentation um, and ads out there that describe Native people as that and describe scalps as that. Um, and so the history of it is very gruesome. And throughout the years, you know, the R word has been always referred to us, has always been used as a way to, um, to describe us as people who were uncivilized, um, who were savages, people who weren't deserving of human rights, or basic human rights and decency. And so today, you know, that, that name has lingered all of these years. And it's been, they've tried to flip it to say, oh, well, it's a term of endearment and it's a term of honor. And you will see people bring up, um, his, you know, people like Ives Goddard, who says that it was first used by, you know, some person settler and it was used as a term of endearment or something um which you know it doesn't matter you know at if it, let's say that were the case the way that it's been used and it's still used today still has been very detrimental to native people and so and we have been saying this you know we have been saying this for decades i mean years and years way before I was born, you know, this was an issue. And so, you know, those are the people that the team should be listening to, not some poll that they drummed up through the Washington Post a few years ago, um, and not from people who, who they want to buy out. You know, they, they bought Native people throughout the years to stand by them and say, these Natives over here don't care. This small majority or this small minority do not care about the name. They're actually proud of it and they love it, you know, and <clears throat> they're the ones who get money. They're the ones who get clothing and they're the ones who get computers or whatever else the team has given them throughout the years. But yet you have this majority over here of Native people 
Native organizations, human rights, you know, organizations, um, and people who have really fought against this and not for any profit, you know, not for any money or anything like that. We've never asked for any money of any sort. All that we asked was that the name be changed and then and they do away with Native imagery. When you describe uh, the use of the R word, you know, I also kind of hear what what people have said about the N-word. Um, and if the N-word had a mascot and that was being used in sports, I'm sure there would be an equal kind of uproar in saying this use of this derogatory name and this derogatory image needs to stop. How much do you see that correlation between the R-word and the N-word? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's definitely the same thing. Um in my opinion, I may think, you know, there are some natives out there who loosely use the term skin um, to refer to each other. It's kind of like a street sort of slang term. Um, uh, you know, I don't use it, but I, you know, I've hear people say that to each other. Um, and the same thing with the N-word, right? People use it in, um, in, within their own community, it's acceptable, but not all people within that community find it, you know, like that not everyone in that community approves of it. Um, and so that's the same way here, but what the difference is, is that when it's used on the outside with the N word, if it's used from a non, uh, black person, it's deemed offensive and is not used. And that's kind of, that's the social norm today. Um, and, you know, in the Native community, you know, I and I always say I don't agree with it. I know that there are Native mascots in Native communities. I don't agree with it. I think those also need to go because they do nothing to further our image as Indigenous people. But they exist. And we're Native if anyone has any right to use a native mascot, it's native people. I mean, who can, no one can come in and tell us that we can't, you know, because it's, it's us, we're doing it to ourselves. Um, so I think it's, a, it's sort of the same thing. Um, but I think the issue is when someone outside my community, a non-native person um, calls me something like the S word. Um, squaw. Um, it's so offensive. I mean, and it's, it's just not right. You can never, don't ever, ever do that. <laughs> I lived here in Arizona when I first moved here, uh, in 1999 and, you know, there was a highway here mm-hmm. that was named, uh, the S word peak highway. And it would, you know, drive. I would drive past the, you know, the S word peak mountain and, you know, people would go and, go climbing and go, you know, outdoor, uh, doing, you know, doing their outdoor stuff mm-hmm. going around this mm-hmm. mountain. And I, and I had no idea. Uh, I grew up in New York. Right. Uh, and I'm biracial. So I, I'm, you know, I, I'm sensitive to certain things, but I did not know until the naming of that, of that renaming that mountain for Lori Piestua, mm-hmm. which it is now called Piestua Peak. Yeah. The thing is that those names are still lingering, you know, and you still have that road even though the peak has changed, there's still a road, a driveway that goes into Piestua P. 
peak that is called the S word as well. And I hear that they're going through a change right now with the mayor, of, uh, the city of Phoenix mayor is um, working on that to, you know, change it eventually, um, which I'm glad because we native women have been calling for that for, for many, many years here in Phoenix. Um, but it's so interesting how, um, you know, you still have these sort of remnants of, you know, native uh, pejorative terms of native people. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, a lot of people understand not to ever call a native woman that word. You know, I, I would say a majority of people know that it's not a good term, but it's, it's the name of the street. So they're just kind of like, it's there, it's there, you know, and I think that people are just so desensitized to it and haven't really heard from native people from their viewpoint, um, on a national level, you know, I think that what's happening right now is that the world seems to be sort of waking up to a lot of these things that have been normalized, like Christopher Columbus, like, uh, you know, I wouldn't say the Confederate flag, but in the South, maybe the Confederate flag is kind of normal to see. And all of these things are coming down. Um, I feel like the people are seeing this and the conversation in DC, especially with fans is definitely changing with the name. I feel like there's the way that people are talking about it now is very different than the way that they talked about it a year ago, or even back in 2014 when we had a huge victory and it was all over the news and people were talking about it and everyone was calling for a name change even then, I felt like the really diehard fans were really digging their heels still. And, but now, I mean, in D.C., you have the Hogshaven, who are just diehard fans, um, who are promoting Change the Name t-shirts. I mean, to me, that the, the paradigm has shifted so much now within the general population, but not necessarily with the team and the NFL. They're still stuck. So take me back to six years ago. You started to talk a little bit about it when you and five others decided to take the NFL team to court. Um, what made you make that decision to file that lawsuit and, and talk about just that moment of that whole process? Mm -hmm. Well, that was when we had our win. We actually filed the case back in about 14 years ago, 20, 2006. Um, and it really was a continuation from Suzanne Harjo's case, which is Harjo versus Pro Football, which she filed back in the 90s. Um, and so this is like, you know, there's a lot of history to it. And it's not just something that has just kind of come up all of a sudden, which is what a lot of people like to say. Um, and in her case, she had really started this fight. And the goal was to focus, the, the focus was the, um, to go after their trademark. Um, the name and the logo and other logos that they had put away or maybe they retired them, but they were still using, you know, using them as a brand. Um, and so the goal was to tackle the trademarks so that, you know, they can cancel them because there was a law um, under the Lanham Act that said that you cannot uh, trademark register something that is offensive to a group of people. And so, that law was was our foundation um, in the Harjo case and, and in our case as well. And the reason why Suzanne lost was 
in a higher court that they deem that um, that her plaint that the plaintiffs in that case waited too long to file a claim that they should have filed it when the first registrations came out in the 60s. Um, and so that's where this sort of age issue came up. You know, they had to, um, yet you should have filed it back then when they first came out, um, or you should have filed it when you became an adult. And so after they had lost without a hearing in the Supreme Court, Suzanne Harjo created this younger case, whereas that issue of age didn't apply to us. And so that's when we filed in 2006. And it, you know, over the years, it had just been kind of sitting there, and you know, these things just take, you know, a long time. And, um, and so in, in 2014, you know, things kind of picked up pretty quickly, and that's when we won. Uh, the trademark ruled that the Washington team's um, uh, trademark should be canceled because of the Lanham Act. They're disparaging to a group of people. And so that was a huge victory. Um, and I mean, Suzanne also had won her case, you know, back in the 90s as well. Um, and so that was also in the news as well. But, you know, in 2014, it was, it was, it was, I think because we have more access to media, um, that it was just kind of, you know, it really blew up and it was really big. And people were like, who are these people who think that they can, you know, mess with the Washington team's name, you know, and every, it became very real, I think, to a lot of people that it was actually possible for this group of Native people to actually get rid, uh, legally get rid of the Washington team name. And so there was this huge uproar about it. Um, of course, the Washington team appealed that and appealed it and appealed it until um, they until our case was kind of thrown out by a different case in the Supreme Court. Um, so down the line, what ended up happening was the Supreme Court ruled the Lanham Act unconstitutional because it violates the, they say it violates uh, the First Amendment, so free speech. And that the trademark board cannot say what is disparaging or what isn't disparaging to groups of people. It's like they shouldn't make that call. Um, and it was all because a group, well, several groups um, wanted to call themselves a disparaging term, but they were being denied by the trademark board. And so um, based on that, we inadvertently lost our case. Um, and it just, it's, that was back in 2018, so it's been about two years now. So I think the goal, I mean, it's really hard to get into sports. It's very difficult to influence um, the sports community because it's so there's so much pride attached there. There's so much, um, and you know, people are so attached to their teams. Um, and they're very focused on this is, you know, of having fun and not, you know, really caring about pol politics, not really caring about, um, you know, at least that's how I saw sports in the past. But after a while, I began to learn about activism in sports and how, how much, how powerful that has been in our society. But, you know, to penetrate, you know, the minds of 
fans and uh, players and people who work in sports. It's it's very difficult, especially when you're when you're talking about politics and human rights. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it was hard to do that. And really, the only way that we could see, and the way that you know Suzanne was looking at it was to go for the trademark. And it, I think it accomplished a lot in the in that it changed a lot of people's minds. And it, it made people think and it, it made um, people look at Native identity in a very different way. And so I, I'm always happy for that and always grateful that that happened. Um, but it unfortunately wasn't enough, you know, to move the NFL, wasn't enough to move Dan Snyder. Um, and so here we are now, you know, it's unfortunate that this resurgent against, you know, the, the team name has to have, had to have come after the killings of three people, you know, three black individuals who didn't deserve what they got, you know, who shouldn't have died at the hands of police. It's unfortunate that, that it took that much for people to understand that it's wrong, that racism in any form is wrong. Why do you think it's so difficult for America to face racism and, and especially racism in sport, right? And you, t- you touched a little bit on it, right? In 2018, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Cleveland team announced that it was removing the logo from its uniforms. But yet again, in the NFL, you know, we have Roger Goodell, you mentioned Dan Snyder, you know, most players have defended the name in the past. And, and actually we're seeing a, a change right now with, uh, NFL guy, I can't remember his name, um, changing his statement, quarterback uh, from the Kansas City. He, he believes that the C word, the Chiefs, mm-hmm. should change their name. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, Do you feel that there's a shift happening right now, that, that people are beginning to now finally realize not only is this a black issue, but this is also a, a native issue and we need to make a change now? I think that people are beginning to understand it. Um whether everyone's jumping on board and working to make those changes, I don't know. You know, I, but I feel like people are beginning to understand and, and connect, um, connect all of these issues. Um, you know, because you're seeing, you know, when we talk about addressing something bigger than, you know, just the Washington team, that's racism. And addressing something bigger than that is colonialism. You know, as you see the toppling of Christopher Columbus statues in this country, um, and so I, 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 I like the fact that people are making those connections um, because that is really what we have been fighting for as Indigenous people. Because it's not just about the Washington team; it's about the way that we are treated in society in general. It's it's about the way that we are treated in Congress and by leaders. And, you know, it's about the fact that Trump thinks that he can make Pocahontas comments and Pocahontas slurs um, to, to people and just get off scot-free and people really just don't care. Um, and it's the fact that, you know, things like Standy Rock happened several years ago um, and the fight for our land, our water, um, is still happening to this day. You know, we're still trying to fight uh, to to save our sovereignty. It's constantly 
um, being threatened at every end. And so I'm glad that people are making those connections, but I just wish that people would, um, would really just take action because that's what we need now. We need action. We're done trying to sit down and talk to Dan Snyder. We're done trying to have a conversation with the, with the bigots who think that, um, you know, who, who can't, there's no reasoning with bigots. We just change has to be made. And if they're not going, they've had ample opportunity to, to stop using the name. And I think at this point it's going to have to come down from a, someone else. Someone else is going to have to make that decision and force them to make the change. Just the way George Preston Marshall was forced to integrate his team back in the sixties and to see George Preston Marshall's legacy being torn down um, is, is just amazing to see that. And I'm glad that that is being unveiled and that people are, 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 able to make those connections. But, you know, it's, it's going to happen. We need action right now as Native people. Um, we need people to act. We need people to do something because we have done all we can. We have used every uh, means possible. The legal system, the protests, the media campaigns, um, everything um, possible everything possible to, to try to affect change. And yet here we still are in 2020, the world is burning and yet they're still there. And I think one other thing too, and the reason why I think people are really able to see and make these connections is the fact that we have a president who is a white nationalist <clears throat> and supports white supremacy. Um, openly and you see this sort of resurgent uh, of this white nationalist um, KKK presence um, you know you this resurgence of, of racism just blatant racism in front of us in this country um, and that has to do with the president and what he is tolerating and what he encourages um, and so I think white people, are very afraid that they are going to become the minority um, in this country. And, and, and we all know what happens to minorities and what has happened to us in this country. You know, the way that Native people are treated, the way that Black people are treated, the way that um, the Latinx community is treated. You know, we're, we're treated so horribly. And I think that people are really afraid that that, that, that might happen to them. And so there's this sort of resurgence of this all lives matter, white nationalistic, white supremacy in a very violent way. I mean, you see what happened in St. Louis recently with um, the couple who were toting their guns, threatening people. Um, and it's happening all over the world. I mean, all over this nation. And I think that people see that now, um, like-minded, reasonable people, uh, white people who who don't want to fight, who who are who are not hateful, who are you know good people, see this, and so that's why I think you have this sort of movement um, of supporters, and I'm I'm happy to see that, but it's unfortunate that it has to happen this way. Amanda Blackhorse, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thank you for having me. That was Amanda Blackhorse. 
founder of nomorenativemascots.org. There are several updates to this story that have occurred in just the past 24 to 48 hours since we recorded our interview with Amanda. First, the city of Phoenix has officially announced that they are starting a process to rename two streets that have been long criticized as offensive and racist. In two separate votes, the city council voted unanimously on Wednesday to initiate the process to change the names of Squaw Peak Drive and Robert E. Lee Street in North Phoenix. Second, Nike has removed all of its products containing the R word and its image of the Washington team's mascot from its website. Three, FedEx, the team's named stadium sponsor, has issued a statement saying, quote, we have communicated to the team in Washington our request. They change the team name. Fourth, and literally as I'm recording this, uh, the Washington team has just announced that, quote, in light of recent events around our country and feedback from our community, the Washington Redskins are announcing the team will undergo a thorough review of the team's name. This review formalizes the initial discussions the team has been having with the league in just recent weeks, end quote. For the latest updates on this story, be sure to follow us on Twitter at GlobalSportMTRS. As sports continue to plan a return, some TV networks are debating whether to show players protesting or to just go straight to commercials. Since Colin Kaepernick first knelt during the national anthem, a battle between execs and players has been brewing. COVID-19 grinding the world to a halt forced us all to realize and examine our values in wake of the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many others. Right now, sports media is covering the stories of protests, players speaking out against police brutality, giving a platform to the cause that would otherwise have been taken up by live sports. When seasons return, what will the role of sports media be? Will they continue to cover the fight for racial equality and give airtime to players as they speak? Or will it be business as usual, forcing the issue to the sideline until another global pandemic pushes it back into the spotlight? Joining me right now are award-winning sports writer Bill Roden with ESPN's The Undefeated and Eric Dagan's NPR TV critic and adjunct professor at Duke University to get down to the issue of what role does sports media play today? Bill, Eric, welcome. Hey, thank you. How are you guys doing? Thank you. Doing as well as it can be in the pandemic, I guess. <laughs> We're still in a pandemic? Is that still going? Is that still a thing? Yeah, dude. <laughs> I think we should talk about that. Because <laughs> uh, particularly uh, you in Florida, man, a lot of people seem to think it is over. <laughs> oh, man. And see, I knew there was going to be a problem because um, my girlfriend and I decided to do a staycation. So we went to um, a resort in Clearwater and we did the social distancing and we had masks and gloves and the whole thing. We were just going to hang out in our room and look overlook the balcony and stuff, be near the water. And people were acting like it, it was over. No masks. Just there were there was 100 people in the pool just hanging out. And I knew two or three weeks later it was going to be uh, outrageous. And, and so that's what we're in the middle of now. I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida. And our numbers are getting out of hand. And the testing facilities, they have a testing facility where uh, the Rays play, the, the Tampa Bay Rays play. And they can only be open for like an hour a day because the line goes around the building uh, for people trying to get tested. It's, it's crazy, man. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to throw a topic in. So 
you know, executives at NBC, CBS, Fox Sports, ESPN, they're all debating how the networks are going to handle protests, right? Whether it's the NBA, the NFL, uh, you know, Jameel Hill has said that it would be journalistically irresponsible to not show them. What are your thoughts? Hmm. Um, well, um, that that's, you know, I, in fact, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, Andrew. I was speaking to somebody uh, at ESPN yesterday. Uh, about you know how how networks uh, can make choices, how producers make choices. You know when somebody is streaking uh, across the field, you know uh, they have the option. You know first we would show it because it was great TV. Now of course you just simply don't show it. But remember what the what networks did uh, in the NFL, I think maybe a season or two ago, where they just chose not to show the national anthem and people kneeling. Because they had made a decision not to do that. Uh, now, which is a form of censorship. Um, so really, really, it just rests on on how much you fear repercussion, repercussions and how much you embrace um, protests. So I think and, and I would love to be in that room. And maybe that's what this show, what this segment is about. Who is in that room making those decisions? about what to show and what not to show. So, well, you know, I, I look at our demographics, uh, mostly white Southern viewership, you know, getting tired of this. So we're not going to show it. So I, I think that's, I think that's, I think that's fascinating, but it's, I think it just shows, I don't know how you feel, Eric, how important it is to have people in the room making these decisions. That's probably almost more important than who's behind the camera showing or not showing is who gives those orders. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And I would also say that <clears throat> it, it's sort of wrapped up in the answer to this question that was posed is another question, which is why did the NFL feel like it was OK to come forward now and say that um, the kneeling protests were suddenly OK? You know, why would why was why did the NFL feel like it could come forward and say, OK, now we understand why some of our black athletes felt the need to make this statement because the overall sentiment of fans has changed. So they're going to show this stuff because they know that the, the great majority of their fans now are not upset about it in the way that they were uh, back when Kaepernick first started doing it. And, and, and ultimately, you know, that's, that's the bottom line. Like, like part of what we have is, is, the fact that the NFL is a business or that all these professional teams are a business and they keep an eye on whether the fans will keep buying the product on top of that, on top of that, you have the fact that almost all of the decision makers are middle-aged white men and they provide, and they utilize all of their cultural assumptions and systemic racism and unrealizing, um, you know, sort of um, prejudices to make decisions uh, about what they think will happen to their business if they do X, Y, or Z. And what's interesting to me about this moment is that it is showing these people that if you ignore racial problems long enough, there will be a come to Jesus moment. There will be a time when the audience turns to you and says, hey cops, why did you enable racism for 30 years? Hey survivor, why have you shown black people this way for 20 years? And if you're not ready to answer that question, uh, you know, bye, Felicia.
So, um, you know, I, 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 I do think that this is a moment when we can turn to those power brokers and say, look, this is why you should have listened to Kaepernick two, three, four years ago. This is why you need to listen to people when they bring up this stuff when it happens rather than waiting until people are rioting in the streets and really upset at you and, and, and your business is in jeopardy. Um, you know, I, 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 I really wonder what would be happening in the sports world if everything wasn't frozen because of the pandemic. But now at least people have a chance to think about this for a bit and, uh, and maybe come up with more thoughtful uh, responses. But my short answer is I think, uh, I think they're going to show the protests because I, I, I think the public is ready to see it. Bill, I think it's a, it's a good thing in terms of what you're saying about, you know, who's in the booth calling the shots. Um, and as we've seen, and as I've seen, especially coming from the public media side, now coming into the sports world, the issue of the lack of diversity within the world of sports media and sports journalism, uh, seems to be akin to all of the, you know, all of the industries in terms of their lack of diversity. So if we had more black journalists and more, and more black storytellers, would Colin Kaepernick's story have been different. And, and I know it's always terrible to want to go back and rewrite history, um, especially with this story being now four years old. But what could what could this look like if there were more black journalists, more storytellers, more executive producers in the booth calling the shots? Yeah, that, that's such a great question. And, and I don't think that we're rewriting history. In other words, we're watching game film. We're watching game film, but not just for the purposes watching something in the past, but we're watching game film of last year's game to plan for the upcoming game, you know? And I think that um, relative to that, yes, absolutely. Uh, not only what would have happened had we had more black journalists, but now moving forward, you know what? We got to get more black journalists moving forward. As we move into this, we've got to get more black journalists in this room because it absolutely would be different. Uh, it would be not not that all you know not that that there's this monolith, but I think that um, you could have you know you you could have Jamil uh, in a room with uh, with me and with Mike Wilbon and with Stephen A. Smith and with others, and we might debate certain things, but there's a general agreement on the premise that that. Our humanity matters. We probably all could tell stories of racism. You know, I think the issue, the, the, the debate would be how do we attack it? Not spending four weeks deciding does it exist? <laughs> and I think that's the difference that, you know, Eric, you've been in those, you've been in those rooms where you spend time just debating a basic premise that black folks have agreed on, just like you were talking about, about these protests where a lot of our white friends are talking about, my, I didn't know and all that. So imagine being in these rooms with these white executives, uh, men and women, you know, who you've got to convince about a basic premise of racism. And the only way to root that out is to do something I don't think that industry is ready to do, which is basically have a lot of black uh, shot callers in these rooms, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, people people talk trash. Oh yeah, well we got to do that, but people do not want to give up privilege. 
people do not want to give up power. And 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 so so well, first of all, let me say that um, if there was ever a podcast with you and Jamel and Mike Wilbon, that would be like all star podcast right there. I'm just saying. But uh, uh, but beyond that, yeah, you know, like, of course, it would be different. But diversity is a journalism value because it adds to accuracy. So what I, when I talk about this with, you know, those decision makers, I'm always saying this is about getting the full story. If you don't have black journalists in your sports departments, then when Cap does what he does, perhaps you don't get the full story of why it's so important and why what the, the way the NFL reacted was so bad. Um, so it's about getting the whole story. It's not about, you know, altruism and doing the right thing. And I mean, you'll get all that great stuff when you when you put more black people in your department. But what you really get is more accurate sports coverage and you'll get prescient sports coverage, sports coverage that will tell you about this movement before people are in the streets you know, um, uh, protesting. And and what we're seeing in a lot of areas of modern media is that they've diversified their reporting ranks, but they haven't diversified their leadership. And that's why you have these groups of, of, of reporters of color at the LA Times and at the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, you know, banding together and saying, you know, we demand change because the leadership has not been as progressive or tuned into this issue as um, the the, uh, the the reporting ranks, and 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 part of that is is just a function of how the business has gone, where you know it's been hollowed out, and and so most of your reporters are are young people, and and so they'll be a little more diverse, and most of your leadership is the old white folks who st- stuck it out, and 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 so now there has to be an effort. To diversify those shot callers that, that Bill, uh, as Bill referred to them, perfect term, uh, so that so that they can take the handcuffs off their uh, black reporters and make sure they they get the chance to pursue the whole story. Yeah, yeah, Eric, because uh, again, uh, we keep saying to each other, you know, what we mean because we've all <laughs> we've been in these rooms, and and you're right, you could be a young, uh, you know, black man or woman reporter. You know, and they could tell you it's like you know it's like uh, what is that uh, the 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 Billy Holiday line about them that's got shall get, uh, and there's a line that says you can help yourself but don't take too much, and I think that's where we are now with all these protests and we want we you know you probably had it too you know, like producers scrambling for black people to put on the air <laughs> you know during these riots you you want and the more strides you are the better. You know, uh, this is not the time for Uncle Tom. We want strident black voices. <laughs> you know, but we want people but you're right, you talk about right on camera. <laughs> but that's the dilemma because, but then when you get too far out, there's a well, you, you know, like you talk about a, a podcast with, let's say, a Stephen A. Smith, a Jason Whitlock, uh, uh, you know, Jamel, some other people, and some people with some different approaches of how to attack the problem, but it, it gets so powerful that people, we, we, you know, we don't, we're not sure if we're ready for this kind of reality. It's like, it's, you know, it's like our history, you know, our, we are such a, an ahistoric people, but, but there's, there's, there's a reason for that because look at everything that's happening now. There are, there are young white people 
who are absolutely horrified when they learn about things they took for granted. They said, what? what? Really? You know, um, but slavery was not a tea party. And you go in, you do a deep dive into what this nation did on an hour-to-hour basis to black people, the rape, the murder, the ripping your family apart, selling them. I mean, I mean, what was it like to be a black person in the South for an hour? Forget a week or a month or a year, an hour. So I, so I just think it's almost, it's almost um, in the, I don't know, power structure's interest to kind of not really do a deep, deep, deep dive into our history and then have black folks who, who are in charge who are demanding that you do a really realistic deep dive. Because they may say, you know what, man, our, our viewers aren't ready for this. We're, this is just too much. This is a land of the free, the home of the brave. Play the national anthem. Do the Pledge of Allegiance. Just don't upset this Tea Party, which is the United States. And I think that's what you're up against. But maybe you're right. It may, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're in a period of time now, and I think it's only going to last for it. I don't know, you know, this is going to go on forever before people get tired of this. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's the thing that I often say to people about this moment is that uh, once your eyes are open to how racism works in America and you look around, you will see it everywhere because racism is everywhere. And, and, and people, uh, you know, something like this happens and then, like you said, they, they put a lot of us on air. You know, I've never done so many Zoom interviews in my life. And, and, and we get to say exactly what we think. And then after a while, people start to say, well, I look over here at football and that's racist. And I look over here at basketball and that's racist. And I look over here at cops and Survivor. These shows I've been watching for decades and that's racist. And, and, and you know, after a while, people start to feel like, well, they're just saying everything's racist. And we're saying, well... Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> so, so, um, so, so, so I do think that we will have a window where there's an appetite for this conversation and we get to kind of put these ideas out there and then it will narrow. But I also, you know, I have a, I have a 16 year old kid turns, turns 16 in a couple of weeks. And, um, and what I see among him and his peers is that they, they are thirsty for this conversation. They know um, that, uh, that this stuff has been going on and they're tired of it. And so I think because the younger generation is really energized and sees this issue a little bit differently, I'm not saying they're free of prejudice because that's never true. They, they are after all the children of their parents, but, but, but there is, I think a strain of thought amongst young people that they are less tolerant of this stuff. So I don't think it's gonna go back to the way it was, but it won't be where it is now either. Bill Roden, Eric Dagens, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Bill Roden with ESPN's Undefeated and Eric Dagens, NPR TV critic. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Huddle. The Huddle is a production of the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters at ASU. This episode was produced by Kendall Jones. Our manager of communications and marketing is Crisal Valencia. To learn more about how sport impacts the world, be sure to check out our website. It's globalsportmatters.com. 
That's globalsportmatters.com. I'm Andrew Ramsamy. Thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, have a great 4th of July weekend.